0: You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. Nine-year-old Ruby and her father Mitch lead an itinerant lifestyle in Gina Perry's novel My Father the Whale. We question if this is independence or an escape and we witness the repercussions later in life. So, Gina, welcome to 3CR.
1: Thank you. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Excellent. Now, nine-year-old Ruby travels with her father... And they have a a very itinerant lifestyle. Tell me more.
1: Well, this is a life that Ruby's really only known since she was born. So she's been travelling Australia in a combi with her dad, Mitch. They busk for a living and they just move from place to place. So really, uh, this is her entire world. It's the only life she's ever known. Um, they stop occasionally when they go to agricultural shows or fairs. They might stop in a, a caravan park, but generally they do pretty rough camping. And yeah.
0: And there's a sort of reason behind all of this because Mitch has some very firm opinions and some very interesting lifestyle choices about him. Tell me more.
1: Well, he does. He actually believes their life is idyllic. Uh, He's very um, anti-convention He feels that their life is superior because they're unfettered and free And he's trying really to inculcate his daughter with the same beliefs
0: But there's a hint of mystery behind this as to why they're leading that lifestyle How much can you tell us about that?
1: Well, I can tell you a little bit more than Ruby knows because certainly in the first half of the book, it's told very much from her point of view. So all she knows is that the map of Australia where she actually records all their travels uh, is crisscrossed with the evidence of their trips. She does it with a red biro and she says it looks like an eyeball, really, with lots of veins, except for the state of Victoria and they never travel beyond and into Victoria, let alone
0: Melbourne. And the childlike perspective there is that Victoria's sort of fallen off the map is is her first impression of it. Um, But Mitch is not necessarily a reliable character in terms of ruby's meant to have charge of the money but you're not in charge of me so there's something about his character yeah.
1: he really wants his daughter to be a mini version of himself so as long as she toes the line um he's happy but there he's very inconsistent too as a parent uh He gives her some responsibility but then undermines it if he feels that she's really challenging him.
0: So very insecure in some ways and somewhat narcissistic, you could say. Oh, absolutely. Now let's segue a little into two images that you've got in this book, the whale and the Brumby. I mean, obviously, my father, the whale. But you've used this natural imagery. The first is of um, the whale it was May now, and she pictured the whales moving northwards with powerful flicks of their tails. The pregnant mothers would be heading for warmer waters to give birth, and the nursing mothers, whose milk was dwindling, dwindling, were getting ready to give their one-year-old calves the slip. She felt sorry for the calves because they didn't know what was about to happen. From the moment the calf was born, the mother looked after it. She nudged it to the surface to make its first take its first breath. Then they set off so close together that the baby whales didn't need to swim. They were lifted and carried along in their mother's current. They could even drink milk or have a nap in her slipstream. Then one day, when the calf was around a year old and taking a nap, the mother whale swam off and left it to fend for itself. And it sort of has echoes of what's happened to Ruby.
1: It does. Actually, it's quite moving hearing you read that, David. (laughs) Thank you. It does have echoes of Ruby and I'm trying there, I guess what I'm showing is that unconsciously she's searching for that story and drawing a parallel between her own life with her mother being gone um, and somewhat mysteriously disappears. She knows that her mother has died, but that's all.
0: And the need for individuals to to survive and and what support can they rely on? There's another image, and we're jumping ahead in the story in some ways, but it's of a Brumby. And there's this romantic vision of the Brumby, uh, and we'll come to how um, Ruby came across the animal later. He should have been... uh, He should have seen her when she first arrived, Mr Stanley said. People romanticise them. Fact is, theirs is a hard life. Hardly any food and water during the drought. He shook his head. And if any of them get injured, this one got tangled in barbed wire. If they can't keep up, they get left behind and it's a slow and painful death. She was half starved when we got her and dehydrated. Now look at her. And in many ways a reflection of how some people uh, struggle to live and survive. So you've used these animals as a metaphor for what's going on in the story.
1: Thank you. I think sometimes when you're writing, these images come to the surface naturally and so it's only later for me that I think about them. But, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, I might have jumped ahead then. No, no. But then we have um, Ruby and Mitch uh, and their combi, a great vehicle to get around it, but the combi breaks down. And this is where... uh, Ruby meets Fiona and the Stanleys. And this is a change of lifestyle for her. What happens there?
1: Well, they're stranded in this small town of Whalers Bay, she and Mitch, and he has to get a job, obviously, to pay for the combi repairs and she has to go to school for the first time. And that is a revelation for her because Mitch has prepared her for school as a place of cruelty and conformity and while the school she's at is fairly conservative it's certainly not as bad as Mitch has painted and she meets Fiona there who's uh, a reluctant student I'd say and she through Fiona she gets a glimpse of what other families live like and she begins to really um, make a comparison between the life that she and Mitch leave and the values they have compared to the lives and values of the Stanleys who she's very drawn to. And so there's a conflict between her love for her father and her growing affection and care for this family. And an
0: understanding of there being an alternative lifestyle so the combi is repaired, but that signals a division.
1: That's right. That's right. There's a, The combi's fixed, but Mitch and Ruby's relationship is beginning to fracture.
0: And in fact, being a narcissist, where does Mitch end up? He goes to Japan.
1: Oh, yes, yes. Um, and, and
0: so this is quite a shock, as in um, he's still really narcissistic thinking of himself and off he goes. But this is where it becomes interesting because there's a second half to this book, 16 years later. Ruby is now 25 and she meets her father again. And this is quite a revelation for her in, how many, in so many ways. Uh, would you like to elaborate on Sure,
1: yes. Um, Mitch comes back. To Whalers Bay after a long absence, and Ruby's really confronted by the changes in him, superficially anyway. Um, What we soon realise is that underneath he's pretty much the same person, although he's trying. Um, But he is uh, someone who obviously is a good survivor and is smart and has made money, so. The, the change in his circumstances is quite a contrast because Ruby, in a way, is still in Whalers Bay and she's kind of stuck almost.
0: Well, she's got the principles she was raised with, but her father seems to have foregone those values and principles in being uh, moneyed now. And he's with Carlos, Tell us about Carlos.
1: Well, he's he has a stepson and he has a new partner who's a successful musician, and yes, his values seem to be quite different, and that is the thing that really prompts Ruby to start reevaluating what he's told her in the past, because she begins to see or or gets a sense that he uh, has been has changed and. She starts to think about what this might mean. Were those things that were set in stone, she thought, as a child, and now much more...
0: Well, are, are they as important as, important. as they were? Yes. yes. And this brings Ruby to start looking into her past, her own mother's past, and the Volkoff family. Her middle name is Volkov. Uh, and this brings about certain changes there's an interesting um, situation she's actually having an affair with a married man and she leaves him and that's uh, stunning because it's abrupt in a way and it leaves him floundering Um, so there's a would you say it's an act of cruelty or how would you describe it
1: Uh, no I think that Ruby in some ways has absorbed Some of the things from her father, and one of them is that you keep emotionally, you don't get too close to people, certainly um, in terms of an intimate relationship, and that she's quite hedonistic in a way. She enjoyed the sexual relationship, but as soon as this man that she was having an affair with wanted something more serious, she was not interested.
0: But also then the the notion of relying or depending on people, Mm. making... Choices, but not being able to account for the choices of others at the same time. And she meets her aunt, Hannah. But we've got this uh, romantic potential, a bit like the Brumby, we romanticize the Brumby. But her encounter with her own aunt is not what she expects, or for that matter, her grandmother their situations are, are challenging in and of themselves. What happens when Ruby encounters her
1: When When Ruby family? encounters her grandmother and her aunt, it, it really, I think it becomes pretty obvious that it's almost too late. Her grandmother um, doesn't remember her and has clearly got Alzheimer's. Her aunt seems very disenchanted and almost cynical about Ruby's motives in turning up. Um, so many years later, and so Ruby has to overcome this kind of chilly reception in order to find out what she wants to know, which is more about her mother, and and certainly more about her mother and
0: Mitch. And it can also be traced back to the Volkov story, the Ruby's great grandparents, because they actually had came out of Europe, and so that influenced the way. Nadia, her mother, and Hannah behaved. Mm. Yeah, So, I mean, they've got their own story and, and it filters down across the ages in terms of how we interact with people. Which leads me to the final point, this notion of story that you raise on page 318, if I can bring it up. Stories help us understand the world, her aunt had said. You make up stories to explain terrible things, she had said. Ruby's grandparents' story of Nadia as a victim had brought them comfort. And Mitch's story of the heroic father giving his daughter the experience of a lifetime had been just as self-serving. Her own version, the fairy tale romance cut short by tragedy, was just as much a consolation. The plane's wing tipped and they were immersed in cloud. None of the different versions was true to her mother but attempting to capture the truth of who her mother was was like trying to catch smoke. Perhaps the only story that got nearer to the truth was her own. But what was her story? So this notion of the importance of story in developing an individual's identity?
1: Yes, and the stories we tell ourselves about our family, our origin, how we come to be the way we are actually the stories that shape us at the same time that we're narrating them and that's really what ruby comes to realize at that point in the in the novel
0: well if you if the listener wants to find out more about ruby's story and then, uh, how uh, Mitch Behaved, the novel is My Father the Whale, the author is Gina Perry and it's from Harper Collins Publishers. Gina, thank you very much for talking with me today.
2: Thank you, David. That was terrific. Well, our segue there is another story about travelling around Australia. So let's hear it. Australia is a big country, so sometimes the best way to do it is by a road trip. But then you hear about backpackers getting lost in the bush. Michelle Prack has written a thriller, and that's just one of the scary bits in The Rush. Welcome, Michelle. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, it's Haley and Scott, university students who think about a road trip from Adelaide to Darwin. Why do they need passengers? Well, being university students, they are on a very strict budget,
3: and the kilometres from Adelaide to Darwin uh, chew up a lot of um, fuel costs, so they are very keen to share those costs, but also there's the sense that they'd like some more company in the car, and not just being themselves as one couple, but having a couple of new friends ride along with them.
2: Livia is 24 years old and a well-travelled, confident Brazilian. Why does she want to get to Darwin? Livia is a climate
3: change activist and uh, she's in a bit of a different boat to a lot of um, activists and that she's funded quite nicely by her parents. Uh, so she's travelled the world going to conferences and protests and one of the things that she's planning to do next when she reaches Darwin is to board a protest vessel, so they're protesting illegal fishing. How important is social media to her? It's quite important. It's how she reaches others. She's very proud of her climate um, blog. Uh, she shares on Instagram quite often. So it's how she builds her audience and a way for her to share her climate
2: message. And, uh, quote, her engagement rate has dipped. So, Juiced. Juist is a 19-year-old Dutch guy. Either a fun prankster or an arsehole. <laughs> Now, what is Haley hoping for during this holiday with Scott?
3: Hayley's hoping for some reconnection. She's found that her boyfriend Scott buries himself in the online world more and more, so she's on the outer, she's on the wrong side of the screen uh, if you like, so she wants to rekindle something, but also she's really focused on having this sort of travel experience herself. She feels like uh, she hasn't seen near enough of her own country, so she's quite aspirational in that way. She's very keen to do this iconic road trip.
2: But for Scott, it's more like Wolf Creek, another quote. The tension in the story is outstanding. The production is brilliant. So (laughs) I don't think he's quite looking at a connection. There's another group doing a road trip. Who is Rosie and who is he with?
3: Rosie is a bit of a rascal. Uh, so he is a motorcyclist, travelling with a group of friends. I haven't quite called them a gang. <laughs> They're more just a collection of friends who are bike enthusiasts. Uh, however, when he is at the uh, remote pub called the Pindery, uh, Rosie presents uh, a few problems and makes those around him a little uncomfortable. And such uh, at such a stage that sometimes his own um, biker friends have to ask him to
2: Pull his head in. Mm. Now, this Pindery pub, as you mentioned, is the destination they're all planning to stop off at. And it's been written up as one of the top ten outback secrets in a New York magazine. Who lives there? So the Pindery is managed
3: by a couple, married couple, Andrea and Matt, and they have a three-year-old son called Ethan. Andrea Uh, has been travelling and doing the sort of publican work around Australia. However, she did grow up in suburban Adelaide and she's still becoming used to these wide
2: spaces and the isolated nature of her life. They they know most of their clients and they've installed a coffee machine and now sell more lattes than (laughs) lagers. But we did get a bit of a backstory of Andrea. She had a run-in with a bikey many years ago and that's still giving her nightmares. So what did Rosie, the bikey, do that made Andrea particularly angry? Well, it's difficult being a publican couple
3: with that young son uh, because they really have to throw themselves into the work and looking after customers, which means sometimes, you know, poor old Ethan has to be babysat by the good old iPad. Mm. Um, but in this particular scene, um, she can't find her son. She does hear a motorbike grumbling outside and finds that Rosie has taken mm. little Ethan for a ride without asking
2: anybody. The bikies drive off, but the title is The Rush. Why was the weather causing the characters to rush?
3: The weather has such a a massive impact on the story. From the very beginning, we know that... The four young people, for example, were looking forward to a hot, iconic outback road trip with all that sunshine that you might expect. But quite quickly, they hear that torrential rain is on the horizon. And similarly that uh, flood warning presents a lot of problems for Andrea and Matt at the Pindery because they're sandbagging and they know that roads will be cut off and most uh, likely phone reception won't be available either. So Mm. I loved weaving in that flood threat.
2: And the lack of communication and what has Matt gone to do.
3: Well Matt being the good guy that he is has been called away to help with a neighbouring property because while the Pindaree looks safe for now his um, neighbour's property has uh, succumbed
2: to some of the flooding and they urgently need him to come and help. So the property is out of CB radio range and the generator well they had to keep it dry but it's got wet so there's no power no phone. Back to our four in Scott's grandfather's four-wheel drive. There's the problem of driving through water. Quote, Hayley doesn't like not being able to see clearly out of the window. It's like being in an endless car wash. Claustrophobia nibbles at her. And there's Scott. Quote, Livia sees that he's so cranky and keen to dominate the group, and when there's a chance to lead them out of trouble, he backs away. But, it's used. How about we get Michelle Pratt to read from page 136.
3: I am tired of the Aussies, he says. Those two are boring. Haley is always whining and asking questions. She is so needy. And Scott is like a tired, slow old man. Livia clutches her door handle.
2: But you, I like you, he says. Yes. <laughs> that just, mm. The book starts with Quinn, though, a 20-year-old and her dog, Bronte. Now, you better fill us in on who she is. So
3: Quinn works with Andrea and Matt. She is employed um, at the Pindery. It's work and board for her. But she is a local as well who used to live on the family farm. Unfortunately, um, that farm is now up for sale.
2: And in her rush to get back to the hotel... What happened to her? And this is from page five. Whoever
3: this is, wherever he came from, he needs medical attention urgently. Then his arm flings up and a cold hand clutches Quinn's wrist. She shrieks and tries to pull away, hears Bronte's far away barking. Her heels dig into the ground, but the stranger's hand is a vice
2: she can't break. So she stopped because of this body on the road and now she's a captive to the body on the road. Oh. <laughs> Andrew and toddler Ethan, in the dead of night, with no communication, who is the first to return to come knocking to the door? You guessed it it's someone called Rosie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and his opening line, kinda spooky in it. No street lights around here, no traffic neither. Come on. You can be more friendly than that. (gasps) Let's hear a little bit more from The Rush by Michelle Bracken.
3: Andrea stands taller. Get out. I mean it. It's time to leave. Oh, come on, darling. Don't be silly. I said get out. She marches around the bar and opens the front door. Cold air and a spray of rain rush in. You're trespassing now. Rosie settles onto the stool. He doesn't look contrite, only amused. Andrea doesn't know what to do next, so she shivers in place, unwilling to close the door and admit defeat. She needs to get tougher with Rosie. How? Perhaps by reclaiming his room key, revoking his shelter for the night? That might get him moving at last. There's a light at the corner of her eye and she spins around. Her heart leaps. A vehicle is approaching. ''Matt's back. You're in trouble now,'' Andrea announces, something like gloating in her voice. ''I thought you said he was...'' Not waiting for Rosie to finish, she rushes outside and shelters impatiently under the veranda, willing the car to arrive faster. Her teeth begin to chatter, from the chill or the tension. ''Is it Matt?'' Sheets of rain obscure her vision. ''It's a four-wheel drive, but it seems smaller than Matt's Toyota.'' It could be Quinn home at last. What a relief it would be to know Quinn is safe and to have her and Bronte to help boot Rosie from the premises. As the car nears, she sees dark paint, a compact bull bar, windscreen wipers swabbing fast. It's not Maddle Quinn. It's another visitor, someone else seeking safety from the storm. Andrea pushes aside her disappointment. Whoever it is, she is grateful for company. Rosie will stop harassing her when there's another customer
2: at the bar. I wish it had happened like that, Michelle (laughs) Prack. But you gave us a lot more tension and a lot more suspense. So, the pub is certainly the dramatic centre with all the roads leading here and we get an hourly update from different characters. How hard is it to plot a story like that? Well, luckily, I, I am a plotter,
3: so I did have the arc of the story or, you know, a a, um, a map <laughs> ahead of me. And with four points of view, what I did was write one entire point of view first. So, for example, I stayed with Livia for her story, then moved on to Haley and wrote all of her story before piecing them together. So you get alternate stories throughout the book. Very
2: clever. I think it's a very well rounded story. So look you're an Adelaide writer and you we haven't had you on Published or Not before. So tell us about you, you know.
3: <laughs> okay, well I grew up in Wyalla, which is four hours north of Adelaide. And that meant a lot of road trips when I got to university age, Um, obviously travelling back and forth um, from university back home to see friends and family. Um, So that was the beginning of my, I guess you might say, fascination with road trips. Uh
2: (laughs) All I'm just hoping is that you never had a road trip like this one. (laughs) That's right.
3: Um, So... Uh, Then later on in my career, um, I worked for a federal politician whose electorate took in most of South Australia, so um, touching the Northern Territory border and WA and New South Wales. So with that vast electorate, we did a lot of remote road trips, and I love that landscape. It's so beautiful, but at the same time, it's that kind of environment that's ripe for a thriller because there's so many potential real risks.
2: Quinn, we just touched on, and her dog Bronte, and the mm-hmm. the farmhouse that she grew up in, and all the difficulties of her father. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it. I can tell that you've got back history from all of these characters that sort of we get the tip of the iceberg of, which is you know, it's it's good writing. So what else have you written? Uh, Well, I've written a lot of short
3: stories. Actually, I had what I called the year of the short story um, about two years ago uh, where I entered a lot of prizes. Um, I was runner-up in the Furphy Literary Award for Holden uh, and I wrote um, another somewhat scary Outback story as well, uh, which was based a little on a, a spooky incident that I had at Glendambo. Uh, so um, a lot of short story writing, uh, literary short stories, uh, That, but I've really enjoyed turning my um, mind
2: to thrillers. Well, in the rush, Michelle Prack, has the weather and her characters morph from friendly to violent in this tense and twisted thriller. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thank you so much. And it was. So I think we had two very interesting authors today. Well, don't
0: we always have interesting (laughs) authors, Jan? This is what we do on Published or Not.
2: (laughs) And we're going to have two more next week.
0: Indeed we are, so stay tuned for next week's show and bye for now. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.